So I think my very personal definition of a book of the centuries, either book that has a decisive impact on a given century, or a book that can still speak uh, to people well beyond the century when it was written. It could be its cultural influence, or the way it captures the mood of an era, or represents what it is like to live through a particular time and place. Most of all, I think a book of the century would open up or create ways for readers to encounter and experience other books, a kind of sympathetic resonance through reading. A book of the century must be memorable, stand the test of time and capture readers' imaginations or challenge them in some way. And if we are thinking in the context of world literature, it should transcend borders and inspire readers around the world. Given how processes of canonization privilege certain views over others, any list of the books of the century should represent diverse views and historically overlooked perspectives. A great book changes the world. It changes our conversation. We cannot imagine thinking about the world in quite the same ways once it has arrived. Toni Morrison's Beloved is such a book. I can't imagine why it is not one of the books of the century. Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is the final episode of season two of Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Usually we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. But not this time. No! In this special season finale, we wanted to spend a little time talking about what makes a book of the century. We'll review some of the different themes and criteria that have emerged over the past two seasons. We also decided to ask a couple of experts what they thought about these ideas. We're going to hear from Anki Mukherjee, an Oxford professor, and Lynn Nobash, who's the actual person at the New York Public Library who curates lists of recommendations for readers, like the book of the century list we've been going through. Although this list in particular predates her time at the library. And as we'll learn, she takes a slightly different approach. At the start of the episode, we heard from you, <laughs> listeners who sent in your responses to our question, what makes a book of the century? Thank you, everybody who contributed. Yes, thank you. Those were wonderful. Before we get into our interviews, I think it's time for a little cat corner. This episode we are going to introduce you to the special cats in our lives. Alicia, you have a pretty amazing Maine Coon cross something else cat. <laughs> is that right? Well, that's what we tell ourselves. He is <laughs> he is a gray tabby, Grau und Getigert, from Germany. We got him in Berlin from just a family, a Russian family, in fact, whose cat had kittens and the children had already named the kitten Anatoly. He was the last one to be wanted. Clearly people have no taste and we absolutely wanted him. I think he was last because his siblings had long hair as per the Maine Coon Hi. diagnosis. And it's very cute, but actually it's not very pragmatic. And Anatoly has mm -hmm. a wonderful disposition and has come with us 
halfway across the world to California, where he now governs a small flat and takes daily walks on a harness and leash, much to the delight of the neighborhood children, (laughs) patrolling his territory with utmost seriousness, but also delight. (laughs) Oh, he's so cute. But Erica... Tell us about the bat cat. (laughs) The bat panther. Hopkins. My son, who is a cat, is a black oriental, which is a very strange looking cat until you get used to what they look like. It's basically like a black Siamese. He is long and slinky. He's a little bit panther, a little bit bat. His head is a perfect equilateral triangle from chin to ear tips. And he is very vocal. What you haven't heard over the last two seasons is the many times I've had to cut out his yowling as he demands to be let into the room while I'm recording. He's a great delight. We named him after Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poet. And he is full of nonsense (laughs) and games and mischief but he is really cuddly and especially right now because we're going into winter here in Cape Town he's a cold cat Mm. and a cold cat is a really cuddly cat so he just wants to snuggle with us he's just such a great friend and a really lovely person to use Henry James's phrase but actually one that my husband has also used there's the cat Anki Mukherjee is Professor of English and World Literatures at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of Wadham College. Her research focuses on three interlinked areas, Victorian literature and culture, postcolonial studies, and intellectual history, particularly the history and theory of psychoanalysis. Her second book, What is a Classic? Postcolonial Rewriting and Invention of the Canon, was published in 2013 and she won the 2015 British Academy Prize for English Literature for it. Her latest book, Unseen City, The Psychic Lives of the Urban Poor, will be published later this year. We asked Anki to reflect on what classics are and whether it even makes sense still to talk about classic works of literature. We had the privilege of knowing Anki at Oxford while we were doing our doctorates as part of the wonderfully collegial postcolonial writing and theory seminar that she co-convenes there. So we are especially delighted to have her on the podcast. We want to start off by asking you a question during the historical moment that we're in, which is marked by so many and such intense competing cultural values. Does it still make sense to talk about literary canons or the classic? I would say yes, very much so. It makes a lot of sense to talk about classics and about the canon, which is in a way a constellation of classics. So, you know, let's look at a definition of a classic. So this is Italo Calvino in Why Read the Classics? And he says, a classic is a work that comes before other classics. But those who have read other classics first immediately recognize its place in the genealogy of classics. So the classic is kind of a first among equals. It's first among equals in the bookshelf, on the cabinet, on the curriculum, in the collective literary unconscious and 
to read a classic is to not only know its place, but to know your place and our place in relation to it, related and also second rate. You know, so Calvino's musings on reading classics. So he gives the example of Lucretius, Lucian, Montaigne, Erasmus, Covedo, Thomas Marlowe. And he says the classics that depict the modern world as banal and stultifying. So in the throes of an epochal definitional crisis, and it's the classic which bestows on the epoch its form and purpose. So without its guardianship, we will be lost in a timeless haze. This has been the dominant mode of literary criticism. It has been unable to sort of, in a way, discuss the classic without activating this temporal logic of precursors and latecomers, the civilizational lag, if you will, which explains why, you know, posterities, especially post-colonial societies' engagement with the classics of the Western literary canon, it is doomed to be one-sided. It is doomed to be a non-mutual relationship. And one of the examples I like to give is that, you know, we can talk endlessly about textual references to Shakespeare in Jean Reese's Good Morning, Midnight, the Creole Ophelia's Drowning in Addiction in Paris. But this doesn't quite bother Hamlet scholarship. We talk about a very famous Bengali author, Michael Madhushudan Dattu. He wrote a beautiful romantic poetry in English. And then, you know, after his brush with actual England and British racism, he went back to India and started writing in Bengali. And he wrote in Bengali a Miltonic epic. This is kind of widely received by Bengali scholars, by Indian scholars of English literature as a Miltonic study, this revisionist epic of the uh, Ramayana. It's called Meghna Bad Kabya. But nobody in Milton studies reads Michael Madhushudan Dutta. So that's what I mean, that, you know, this, it's very important to read the classics, for the classics to endow form and purpose to the timeless haze of the present. But we need to also read it, keeping in mind that the classic has always activated this logic of who comes first and who comes second. So the canon has not quite exploded if that particular conception is not challenged. What do you make of various kinds of canon defying or even decolonizing moves that are going on right now? Do you think this is making a dent or do you think it's another one of these one, one-sided interventions? I mean, I think it's extremely important. And, you know, I mean, I have myself thought a lot about why the decolonizing turn has come after the post-colonial. By the mid-century, you know, you have that very ecstatic period of independence from colonial rule in parts of the world, such as the one I come from. And you also have nation state formation and you find a lot of decolonizing rhetoric in works of anti-colonial resistance, whether it's Fano or Césaire. They were all talking about decolonizing in that moment when you had to shake off colonial rule. And then the post-colonial became what sprang from the brow of imperial history. And now, again, in the 21st century, we have that return to decolonizing. So I do think that it has come back because it's not finished because it is a perfectible project and it needs to be constantly worked on. There are many ways in which, you know, as both somebody who reads English literature, teaches English literature, but I'm also sort of part of these, you know, ivory tower institutions, I think about decolonizing. And I think it's not just a question of adding a few names 
to preset lists. And this kind of goes back to your first question, that why is it important to think about the classics or the canon? Because it's very important to not enter the canon as a charity case. You know, you do not want Mm. to enter it as some kind of a token minority. You want to enter it by saying that, A, this work engages with some of the value criteria and value contestations of literature very well. And B, by saying, there are other value criteria and there are other value contestations. And this is what, you know, if you look at the work of Walter D. Mignolo, who coined the term decolonial, you know, very, very influential term for our times. It's not the same thing as decolonizing. He's saying, let's look for value criteria in indigenous literatures. Let's look at it in other languages, other sort of literary cultures, in other kinds of cultural memories. So that's the other way in which you want to decolonize, not just adding one small set of texts that have already been translated into English to your course, but actually saying that, you know, we really want to read otherwise and we want to read from different songbooks, you know. Obviously, this is not just about shuffling texts. It also involves an overhaul of hiring practices. It involves an overhaul of the way in which we have that sort of pernicious from colonial times division in our minds about what constitutes the mainstream or the dominant subject and what's the periphery. Till very recently, it was perfectly possible and normal for an an undergraduate at Oxford to do three years of English without reading a single person of color. There is no compulsion to read it. So there has to be an overhaul, which is structural, not just curricular. So it has to be about hiring. It has to be about changing this mindset that there is some kind of a fortress, which is English language and literature, which is being breached by these invaders and latecomers <laughs> from the colony, you know. And I think for me, that kind of ongoing, perfectible, multifaceted process is decolonizing. I was wondering, does that overhauling process extend to overhauling or tweaking a definition of the classic or of the canon itself? How do you define these terms? You offered someone else's definition at the start. What about your own? And is that very much in in line with what Calvino said? Or does it differ in some ways to reflect cultural values that you want to last? When it comes to the classic or the canon, you are looking at a memory system. And this is, again, this is not my definition. It's Harold Bloom's definition. I'm not very fussed about the originality or because I think any gesture toward originality here would be a, a false one. And, and this is because we are in a subject where we don't need to disavow the past. We are not, you know, computer scientists where yesterday's model is outdated today. In fact, so much of you know what we call training in English literature is about how to articulate your original insights in the context of all that has come before, that you need to acknowledge all these traces. And so, you know, I'm not very fussed about what my definition of the classic is or my definition of what the canon is. For me, the very powerful articulation of classic, the Virgil Society lecture that T.S. Eliot gives in the middle of the Blitz, and he doesn't mention the war, That for me is the classic, this very precarious sense of a value that will outlive and out-endure the end of civilization that is the Second World War. And the classic is something that is activated by the critics. So that definition of a classic, both as something which is eternal, but only in a very fragile and precarious way, you know, and it has to be kind of kept alive through transmission. So on the one hand, you have that 
sense of sort of an unbroken tradition. But in that act of transmission, you also have the promise of change and diversity. And you have the promise of decolonization. Who transmits the classic? If you look at post-colonial rewritings, you know, what exactly is canon rewriting? And does it end up reinforcing the status quo? Often you find that what is being repeated is the kind of core story of Hamlet, which is not Shakespeare's own. That is not a story that Shakespeare made up. But what is like in Shakespeare rewritings in popular Hindi cinema, for instance, there is something about, you know, the vicissitudes of a powerful human story that connects us. It gets that trenchant valence by put in a different political setting or in a different political history or uttered in a different you know, language. It's the way in which we become not just people in nation states, but citizens of the world by saying that I have a claim to this story that was activated by Hamlet, but that is not Hamlet. You know, Hamlet is repeating a story that's always already happened. You've given us so much rich material. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's so wonderful to see you. That was a great reflection from Anki. And there are several components that she held together in valuing, but also probing the bounds of the classic or the idea of a canon that were so useful. And two that I want to pick up on include this idea that classics or the canon can orient us. She said, without the classic, we would be lost in a timeless haze. Mm -hmm. And that points toward the idea of cultural memory that exceeds any particular historical moment, of ways of thinking that can enrich and expand the resources of a specific moment, ways of feeling or the way you live in a particular moment. It points toward a real value that's preserved in these texts that humans, some humans, have agreed upon as worth preserving, worth passing down through the generations. And that is maybe traditionally a little more conservative sense of the value of the classic. I mean, in its stronger forms, you can think of Matthew Arnold in Culture and Anarchy talking about culture as something that conveys to us the best of what has been thought and said. And so that's a really conservative approach or it's used a lot by cons other conservative thinkers. And yet Enki doesn't quite go that far. And she certainly doesn't stop there because then she also brings into her comments this question about whose value criteria and value contestations, yeah. like how how do the value criteria shape what has been determined to be of lasting value? And is there a way to bring competing or different voices into the canon, not as a charity case, but instead by saying, actually, we're missing out on something by not preserving this. Yeah. There is something of lasting value here for humanity, for me, that expands the way I or we can think and speak and feel in any given cultural moment, any given historical moment. So those were some of the points that I found particularly enriching in what she said. Yeah. What do you think, Erica? Well, that last point that you that you made, I kept thinking how this is something that you come back to in our discussions of, you know, is this a book of the century? Is the idea of the aesthetic value, the intrinsic kind of value of a 
particular literary text of a particular book? Is this good in and of itself? You know, is it of lasting aesthetic value? And this makes space for that to be a valid criterion that aesthetic quality is a totally a, a valid way of judging, you know, if this is a classic or a book of the century. But it also makes space for those values to be questioned themselves, for what is aesthetically valuable to be changed and to shift and to incorporate features of literary works beyond what has been traditionally valued within the Western Anglo-European canon. And I, that's exciting to me because it's a redefinition in some ways of what those values are, a redefinition of the mainstream. It's not about throwing out the old and replacing it entirely. It's about enriching what we have already. And yeah, I think that the other thing that stood out to me, she said that classics mark time. So they mark eras and epochs. We've spoken a lot in terms of time periods, the moment of decolonization, the post-colonial moment this season, very much so. But modernism as well is another thing that's come up many times, this movement and the post-war moment. All of these things are alive in our discussions. But there's that other aspect, which is that it places you, the reader, that she emphasized, which I really liked as well, that we know where we are because of where we're reading. And this is something that's come up in our conversations too. Is this a book of the century for me? I don't know if it is. This feels foreign to me. Or, or I can appreciate that it meant something at that time, but it doesn't really mean the same thing to me now. Or time has moved on. Our cultural values potentially have changed to the point where this is no longer quite as resonant as it was. So these are questions that we've been coming back to over and over again over these last two seasons. So what are some of the criteria that we've come up with in our conversations? That question of aesthetic value is definitely one. Aesthetic value and also something maybe more nebulous about an inherent value that's maybe not strictly aesthetic, but is related to that, that gives perspective, that changes how you inhabit, how the reader then inhabits their specific historical moment. So something more transcendent. Although, as Anki emphasized, the value of a text and the sense of what is valuable changes as we readers transmit it to the next generation and reinterpret it. Or something to do with culture shaping or literary influence there as well, right? Yeah, in demythologized terms, certainly. That is something that we've come back to again and again. Yeah, the influence on readers and on other writers, but also on intellectual work. Mm -hmm. With Jean Rees, for instance, this question of, you know, how were readings of Jane Eyre in different sort of subfields of English literature shaped mm -hmm. by Wide Sargasso Sea? How were horror movies shaped by the turn of the screw? Yeah, yeah. How is post-colonial theory shaped by things fall apart? So influence in different realms of culture, I guess. Absolutely. And then you've especially emphasized, well, maybe we've emphasized different forms of pleasure, but the pleasure of the reading experience. Yes, definitely. We started off on some shaky ground. My experience of The Golden Notebook by Doris Lessing was one of the, the shakier experiences mm -hmm. that I've had, frankly. And that really brought it home to me. What Did I enjoy reading this or was it 
actually quite difficult and a slog, but not necessarily in a satisfying way. Mm. You know, and that was my experience of reading that book at that time. But again, you know, these things come to us at particular moments in time and they reflect our own state, emotional and physical and existential and, you know, many different types of states. So pleasure is definitely something. And the pleasure for you often is in that aesthetic engagement is in your kind of literary reading. I think maybe more so than mine, I appreciate those things, but I guess I don't find difficulty intrinsically pleasurable, but I think you do actually. You really like <laughs> wrestling with... No, I don't mean it in a bad Motto way. I think life. you really like... <laughs> no. I think you really like wrestling with a difficult text that rewards commitment and engagement. I do like that. And actually something else that links to that, I think, another criterion that we haven't necessarily spoken about explicitly is about rereading, mm. is about, you know, whether a text is like exhausted in one <laughs> reading or whether there's the feeling that there is more to be found and that a book can say different things in a, in a different moment, maybe in a different moment in my life and your life, mm. but maybe in a different historical moment as well, which is what you've been saying before. But this idea that you want to reread it because it's pleasurable and because it can say something meaningful to you. Mm. I think that for me is a book of the century, makes a book of the century. I completely agree. And sometimes that seems to be in more for intellectual reasons or aesthetic reasons, sometimes it's for historical reasons. Anna Akhmatova's Requiem, the poetics to a certain extent struck me as rewarding rereading, but some of that I didn't feel, or I think neither of us felt we had full access to because we were reading mm. it in translation. And a lot of what I valued in that poem was the emotional power with which the Great Purges, this important historical moment in Russian and world history were represented. And so there's also this question of the value of historical representation. And that can be connected to rereading. And that can be connected to giving you a sense of perspective in a, maybe a different historical moment um, or a different context. But it's a slightly different criterion, I think. And it's something we then weighed up again with Things Fall Apart or in, in some of these other texts like The Bride Price that have been really important for opening up space for other voices and for representing specific places or experiences or moments, how important should that criterion be, historical representation? And I think we're both a little wary of making it too important. And yet, on the other hand, it's crucial because every work of art comes out of a historical moment and language does contribute to what we can think and what we can feel and what we can say. So the work of literature, the things that it makes available to us as readers in our wider lives, those things are impacted by historical representation. On this date, May 20th, in 1995, the New York Public Library displayed 195 literary works that had been recommended by their own librarians to, and I quote, acknowledge and express the artistic achievements, cataclysmic events, and intellectual trends that characterized the library's first century. 
That quote is taken from a book based on the library's centenary exhibition. It was published the next year with Oxford University Press under the title, The New York Public Library's Books of the Century. And these books of the century are what we have been reading and discussing in this podcast so far. So in this season finale, as we reflect on criteria and questions about what makes a classic or a group of classics, a canon, or even a book of the century, we wanted to hear from one of the people who makes lists like the one we've been reading. We spoke to Lynn Lobash the Associate Director of Reader Services at the New York Public Library. Yay! We finally got the NYPL on the podcast. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Lynn creates lists of book recommendations for readers, and she trains a staff across the library's 92 locations to do the same. Here are some of the titles of her previous reading list to give you a sense of just how wide-ranging these recommendations are. Memoirs to Celebrate Black History, 125 Books We Love, 7 Books to Help Lapsed Readers Get Back Into Reading, Words Without Borders, Books for World Refugee Day, Top 5 Beverly Cleary Books, and a Walt Whitman Reading List. We were excited to hear how Lynn goes about making these lists and what has changed since 1995 and the list that we read. Let's begin with a, a kind of scene-setting question. Can you tell us a little about the New York Public Library as an institution? Who does it serve and how do these lists fit into its vision? Yeah, it's an interesting time for you, the creators of this podcast, to be asking that because your list was a celebration of the centennial anniversary of the library. And we are now 25 years later, so we're at 125 year anniversary. We have 92 locations scattered throughout Manhattan, Staten Island, and the Bronx. It's interesting in New York, Brooklyn has its own library system and Queens has its own library system. And then the New York Public Library covers the other three boroughs. It serves a vastly diverse community here in New York City. So many different people, from different places, speaking different languages. So it's a pretty unique institution. And I think the thing I love the most about it is that it's in every neighborhood. So there's like these really unique little spots that are really specific to the personalities of the neighborhoods themselves. And it reflects in everything, like all the programming, the classes that they offer, the collections, exhibitions. So I think that's what I love the most about it and what makes it really unique among libraries. And the second part of your question as to reading lists, I mean, you know, obviously your whole podcast is wrapped around this one that was made. This The list actually predates my time at New York Public Library, although I have been there about 18 years. Your list is so special because it was about an exhibition. Mm -hmm. When I was reading it, I really could picture myself like walking around looking at the cases with the books in them, you know, the way that they're divided up, there are like 11 different categories and just being like, oh, utopias and dystopias, like, of course, you know, here's like Peter Pan and the Wizard of Oz next to like 1984 and <laughs> Brave New World. <laughs> of course, they, they are together. And so if, I think it's really cool, the list in that way, because it's got this kind of physical piece to it. The lists that we create now are really similar in that there's a prompt, 
right? So for your list, the books of the century list, I'm going to just call it your list now. Actually our list, but apparently the curator just did a call out, like sent out a prompt to the librarians and was just like, well, you know, what do you think? What are the books that define this century? And then, you know, received all of these suggestions and then put them together in this really interesting way. We'd love to hear more about your process and or the current process for creating these lists. Who selects the books that you feature and how are they selected? What are the criteria that are used? Yeah, it's not so different. We do call out, you know, prompts for staff, like tell us your best like road trip books or what's your favorite Regency romance. And I think one of my favorite things that we do currently that's listy is um, we do quarterly staff picks where we essentially just call out to the staff and say, hey, tell us what you've read and loved in the last like three months. And the thing that's so great about those, and you can find them if you just do like NYPL staff picks in Google, it'll take you right there, is you really get a sense for like the breadth of the staff at NYPL and their reading interests. And what that reflects then is the breadth of our collections. I mean, our collections are so vast. You know, the Books of the Century list is a lot of like, you know, pretty established books. There's not a lot on there that I was like, oh, I've heard of this. I mean, there were a few, but the collections at NYPL, I mean, the just deep, deep genre, deep children's books, graphic novels. I mean, they're just, it's not all literary fiction. And we don't have all people who only read literary fiction. We, in fact, have people who only read like, you know, paranormal romance with, uh, you know, vampires and bikers. <laughs> so it's like, it goes a lot of ways. <laughs> so these lists can come really from anyone. There are more organized ones. Like we recently had 125th anniversary and much like your list, we decided to celebrate that with a couple of book lists. Actually, we did four. They're all titled something like 125 books we love for adults, for kids, for teens. And then we did a New York City book list as well. Things have changed drastically in the last 25 years in publishing, as you both, I'm sure, really know. And so the, the lists look very different than your list, your century list. And not that there's anything wrong with that list. Like, I'm not trying to take anything out of its own context. But when we make lists now, we really are try to be aware that we want some entryway for everyone in these bigger lists, these like books of the last 125 years lists. So we try to have genre in there. And, you know, we make sure that for, I mean, it's difficult when you're talking about the history of publishing, right? So in terms of diversity, you can't really, I mean, what I try and do in my everyday practice when I'm making book recommendations to people like we do it over Twitter and Facebook and just through a sort of online service that we have is for every book by a white person I recommend, I try and recommend a book by an author of color. So I try and do like a one-to-one -one ratio. Now, when you're talking about the last 125 years of publishing, it gets a little difficult because it's not been an even playing field, you know, to say the least. Yeah. But, you know, we, we did really like with the 125 lists, I think we tried to hit at least like 30, 35% authors of color on those lists. And even that didn't feel great. But, you know, you can't, you can't change the history of publishing. I think the lists we do now are maybe a little bit more, not so much like a canon list, but a little bit more user-centered than they used to be, or not user, I should say, reader-centered. 
so we kind of put the reader at the, at the center rather than being like, here's a prescribed list of books <laughs> that every person will enjoy <laughs> because we all know that's not true. And mm. I think at the heart of what I do, which is, you know, reader's advisory, the thing is, is that what you want is to give somebody something that they enjoy so that they will continue to read. Reading a good book leads you to want to read another book. Reading something that you don't relate to or have to slog through is probably going to keep you away (laughs) from the next book a little longer (laughs) than the other way. That's something that we did notice as we were looking through more recent lists compiled by you and your team, that there is a, a shift from quite universalizing terms like books of the century to much more specific focuses like books we love. Yeah. And it seems like there there really is a kind of a shift to something that is more focused on who exactly is reading, who exactly is our audience, who are our library users. You have this incredibly large and incredibly diverse group of readers. Is there a kind of a movement away? Do you feel that quite strongly the responsibility to serve these readers and also the writers? And is that part of this move away from these sorts of universalizing or canon propping up (laughs) movements? Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) That is 100% what it's about. And it's about It's about a love of reading. I mean, you understand what it's like when you like read a book and you just want to hug it when you finish it. Like you just want to like hold it close to your heart and push it in everyone's hands and just be like, let's share this amazing experience. And that's something you want to chase. You want to feel that again and again and again and again. And it's not going to be always the same type of book. Like I'm a different reader in a lot of different times. Like I might really be in the mood for something very different from, you know, what I was in the mood for last time I picked up a book. But it's that satisfaction that when it all comes together in this beautiful way and just touches you that we want for everybody because we think that that is so, so pleasurable. And, you know, and reading is It's a lot of things, right? It's about being a good citizen. It's about being informed. It's about education. um, It's about understanding culture. It's about relating to people in the world. You know, it's it's about a thousand things, but it also is about touching you and, and feeling seen and related to, and like there's other people in the world that you connect to. And so these sorts of feelings, like they come from all different kinds of books for different kinds of people. So yeah, I really do. I really, really, really love this sort of, as I called it earlier, like a reader-centric approach to reading. So that is a bit of a move away from like, everybody read Huck Finn and you'll love it. You know what I mean? It's like, that's, the schools are going to do that. And I think that's great. Like they're going to do whatever their job is, but like the library is very much about education, but it's not school. Thank you so much, Lynn. Yeah, totally. It was super fun. Now, the question that may be on all of your minds, and to a certain extent is on ours, is, will we be back for season three? We don't don't know. know. To be determined. (laughs) We hope so. We hope so. And we have loved doing this podcast. There are a few career and personal... Life changes. Life changes. I don't know. The future is uncertain. 
As it is for all of us, I guess. <laughs> but we've loved doing this. Yeah. And one of the great pleasures has been getting your comments and messages and responses. So thanks to everyone who has been engaging with us and reading along with us. And please keep sending them in. Absolutely. There's still so many books to read. Dracula. The Cat in the Hat. Ulysses. So... We'd like to thank Anki Mukherjee and Lynn Lobash for talking to us for this episode. All original music was, as always, made by me. It was such a treat to have both guests on, but I want to give a special thanks to Erica for making the music every single week. And she goes through a process of trying to find really cool musical illusions within the book and then within traditions that the book that we're reading that week is shaped by. So not only is Erica's music pleasurable to listen to, <laughs> it bears re-listening to. I don't know if it has like transcendent timeless value, <laughs> <laughs> but it has certainly made our episodes a lot better. And that has been such a pleasure for me. And Thank I think you for so much. That yeah. is great. It's been such fun to do this. So... Having said all that, please get in touch with your thoughts on these questions about what makes a book of the century and on these episodes that we've done and the books that we've read. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com or find us on Twitter on at literatepodcast or email us as always at literatepodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this episode or the last two seasons, please give the podcast a rating or a review wherever you like to listen, whatever platform you use, and share it with whoever you think might also enjoy it. And check out our list on bookshop.org, which is a really convenient way to order the books that we've been reading from indie bookstores. We've got a list of all of the books. It's super easy to get hold of them. As you think about where to get your books, please support your local library. And independent bookshop. <laughs>